Hello and welcome to our new podcast, Downtown Drush. My name is Dr. Michal Bitan and I'm the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, who's the JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center at New York University. We are really thrilled to be starting this podcast and hope you will join us on a weekly basis to hear us talk about the Parsha and learn Torah together. So, Rabbi Joe, how are you? How am I? Well, just like everybody else in the world, it has been probably the weirdest, strangest week of my life. Purim was only just over a week ago, but it seems about a year ago. Um, I'm recording this from uh, my bedroom, uh, which is where I've spent most of the hours of this week when I've been working and not with my two little girls who are now being homeschooled. So it's pretty strange. Thank God we are well. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm good. Just you know, really hoping none of the none of the kids wake up and uh, while we're learning together. But you know, I I I'll just want to tell you. I think it's um it's a really interesting response. You know, when the world seems to be falling apart outside a little bit, to actually double down on Torah learning and to start a new podcast. Um, and what a better way to start than with the book of Vaikra, the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Torah, in the five books of Moshe, um, and which, you know, if, we, if we're honest about it, uh, I'm not sure it's anyone's favorite book, is it? Um, it, was, it was probably the Kohanim's favorite book back, back in the day. But yeah, it's, it's not the easiest book. It's not a book like Bereshit or Shemot, which you just jump into and the amazing stories are there. Vayikra is hard. So Vayikra plus coronavirus is going to equal an amazing podcast, and I'm excited to do it. It's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But so let, let's, let's jump right in. Uh, and, you know, usually when I think about Vaikra, uh, I just focus a lot on the, the laws, the different laws and commandments that are at the center of it. It's about sacrifices, offering, laws of purity and impurity. But I think it might be good to step back for a second and just remind ourselves, what's the context in which we're in? How does this relate to, um, to, to Sefer Shemot, the previous book, uh, the book of Exodus? Um, and, and just as a, to, to, to situate it ourselves, so Vaikra is being given while the people of Israel are still camped at Mount Sinai. Um, and the, the chronology is interesting here because we left off Shemot, in which after the sin of the golden calf, the Chetaegel, the presence of God kind of shifts in the camp of, of Israel and it moves to Oel Mohed, the, the tent of the meeting and the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And Sefer Shemot ends with Moshe basically standing outside Oel Moed, standing outside the tent of the meeting and seeing God's glory come on Oel Moed and not actually knowing or able to approach God's presence. Uh, and then we have Vaikra. And the first Pasuk of Vaikra is really like um, almost like an invitation uh, from, from Hashem uh, to, to Moshe. Uh, how, how do you see this? So I think it's actually something which, once we're a bit more used to not just the Torah, but to Tanakh, the whole of the Bible in general, it's something which shouldn't surprise us so much because the Bible, the Tanakh as a whole, it combines a whole bunch of different genres in terms of what, what is it talking about. So, of course, we're most familiar with the narrative, with the story elements. That's the way in which Bereshit begins. 
but there is also a huge legal component to it as well. There is a prophetic component to it. Uh, maybe we'll talk about the Haftarah from Yeshayahu, from Isaiah later on. And then the Tanakh has also got poetry like Tehillim, Psalms, and it's got wisdom literature. So in our third book, we've already had a certainly a significant number of laws already, but in our third book, we're beginning with a whole lot of, of halachot, of laws. And so it's something which, once we get more used to the way in which the Tanakh tells its story, perhaps shouldn't seem so, so strange to us. But I think that what people find to be uh, more jarring than a book of laws per se is actually the content of the laws. I think that what strikes people so much when they begin Vayikra is what it's about. And Vayikra, in a single word, at least the first uh, chapters of it for quite a while, is about Korbanot. It's about sacrifices. Yes, it's it's totally jarring, like the, the content of it. And I, I will add, I think, to what you're noting, there is not only the content itself that is jarring, this whole idea of like animal sacrifices, offerings to this like monotheistic god that we're somehow supposed to think of as something uh, good and part of our tradition. I think to me what's jarring is that the whole, like the Hebrew word for offering for sacrifice is korban. And really the verb of it is kuf rash bet, which is about kirba, about closeness and relationship. And what I find difficult and jarring and challenging, and also I guess an opportunity for some Torah learning, is how can we have this thing that is supposed to be all about closeness and intimacy and relationship with God, and then we actually get into this really nitty-gritty logistics and laws and alachot that seems so foreign and so far away from anything um, that's related to, to covenantal intimacy. You're, you're obviously so right that the, the, the root of the word korban is kufresh bet, which means to come close, which is a sense of intimacy. And this is a very classic and ancient interpretation of what the korbanot are all about. They're about coming close to God. And you know what? It's worth reminding ourselves that this doesn't actually begin with Vayikra. I think the first Korban in the Torah is already in Parshat Bereshit, and it's Cain and Hevel, and it's both of them, these two brothers, the sons of, of Adam and Eve, wanting to come close to God. So perhaps really, we are the odd ones out. We are the ones who find it Strange. I, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Michal. Karine and I, Karine's my wife, um, we honeymooned in India um, a number of years ago, shortly after we got married. And sacrifices, not of animals, but, but sacrifices of, of plants or the like, are a very big deal there. And so what, we, what, I, what I saw there was that people there still relate to sacrifices as a very natural way to, to express their religious devotion. So perhaps if you can go from Cayenne to India today and Sefer Vayikra in the middle, maybe we're the odd ones out. And in a sense, like our our discomfort with Korbanot actually says a lot about us as anomalies uh, in history, as opposed to the vast majority um, of, of the human experience. 
and and you know I really I really like what you said about productive uh, discomfort because I actually think that that it, it brings up some really important questions about love and relationship um, and maybe maybe Vaikra in its invitation to us to kind of step into this um, uncomfortable moments of thinking about animal sacrifices and things that are so foreign maybe it's also inviting us to actually destabilize the way we think about love and relationship uh, that it should really be about something that is difficult that is foreign um, that can lead to tremendous you know closeness kirva um, but that that the, the content, the closeness, doesn't come with a certain um, certain price as we walk towards it. That's really intriguing and beautiful, and I want to think that I understand you. Did I do I understand you to be sort of almost making a a parallel between the discussion of the korbanot and how a person comes close to God to how maybe a couple today sort of think of their relationship? with one another if we talk about love as between two people what's the what, what's the parallel what, what are we learning from Bayekra to that yeah uh yeah so I don't think it's only about romantic love I think it's about just love in general and you know I, I don't want to get too existential here uh but we could you know um but 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 I do think that there is certain um illusions that we have about love as something that's supposed to be easy and always feel good and always feel familiar and always be in our image. And maybe Vaikra by Hashem is literally like at the beginning of Vaikra inviting humans to be in relationship with God. That's the framing for all the foreignness that we're going to encounter. And we're gonna, we might forget about it as we get into the nitty gritty of the Korbanot and other alachot. But, but that framing is some, it says something really radical about love and relationships. That, that yes, my, my ability to come close to another being has to be through through the unfamiliar, right? Through something that's hard for me to to fully understand for myself. Right. And, and, and that, in part, explains the terror of it because we don't like to feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, we like, uh, to use a Pesach metaphor, we like the dry land upon which we're standing and it's the sea which is in front of us, which is, which is what's scary. That's, that, that's really beautiful. Um, and I think you could extend it by also just simply talking about the idea of, you know, in a much more simple sense, perhaps the idea of, of a meal that there's the different korbanot among them have got various different halachot. But uh, one very central one is that the korban, the, the offering is consumed and it's uh, often it's also consumed by the person who brings it. And so um I guess on the one hand, you know, the korbanot might be seeming so other, but on the other hand, is there a more, is there a better known way of forging a relationship between two parties than to be sharing, sharing food with one another? The korbanot are sharing food with with God, Hakadosh Baruch, who is inviting us for for a meal. I always love. My mother taught me this as a uh, as a young child, and I, I I even use it in my work here at NYU that the the Latin origin of the word uh, companion is the etymology is compagna, somebody who, who you share bread with, co copain, like right. So, I think that in some ways, despite its otherness, it's actually extremely familiar with that. Yeah, and that actually leads me to to ask a question because the the question you just asked, Rabbi Joe, is well, isn't there something very familiar here? We're almost like sharing a meal. 
And that, I think, brings us to like this other aspect of deep discomfort that, and I'm just going to say it the way I feel it, there's something about Corbinot that feels really pagan, because it, it is pagan mentality to actually think of the gods, right, uh, as somehow being these capricious beings that have to be appeased uh, so that they don't come and strike me. And so we have all of this mythology and like, you know, pagan ways of thinking and approaching the gods in which you basically make a barbecue uh, and you hope that ex-god will be happy with you and your family and protect you. And and it's 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 really hard, you know, to, to read Vaikra and to remind ourselves that this is not pagan <laughs> and that it's also supposed to teach us some eternal truths that are relevant in 2020. So Rabbi Joe, what what would you how would you respond to the question that that really asks how is this any different than than a pagan worldview well it's it's funny to think talk about vayikra in particular reminding you of of paganism because there was somebody who read vayikra a long time before you michal and was also reminded of paganism and that was the rambam uh, Maimonides, because the Rambam has got this very famous piece in his great work, his great philosophical work, Moray Nebuchim, where he's really bothered by the Korbanot in exactly the way that you just said. And in fact, he seems to adopt the idea that sacrifices are fundamentally part of a pagan idolatrous world. And the Torah only institutes sacrifices because the Jewish people of the time of the biblical period and afterwards were so much a part of that larger uh, pagan world that it would it would have been impossible to to remove them from it. He says he, he starts off the section by saying it would be you can't take people out of one mode of existence. The mode of existence that they know is you connect to. God or the gods, Lahavdil, through Korbanot, and to tell them otherwise would be would be completely nonsensical to them. And he then gives a fascinating example. He said it, it would be as if a prophet came to us today and said, you are no longer allowed to speak to God using words in one's prayer. Rather, they all have to be in your head. You can only think about God. And it's the same equivalent distance, just as that would be jarring and strange to, to us today. So, too, it would have been jarring and strange to, to Am Yisrael, to the Jewish people of a previous time, to be told you cannot approach God through sacrifices. So, I mean, he, that's pretty similar to what you were saying. My monitor is in Moreno Buchim, and, and by the way, this is not the case in everything he writes, right? But at least in the Moreno Buchim, in the Guide to the Perplex, which is meant to be this like work of philosophy for like the intellectual elite, let's say, in the Moreno Buchim, he claims that Korbanot, that offerings, are actually a concession to the historical moment the, uh, and the spiritual needs of the people in that time. So 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 maybe like I think concession is exactly the word, yeah. Right. So so it's it's not as if you know in an ideal world korbanot are like great or like what God wants. They're almost like um not like a bediavad I would say, uh, exposed like you know a concession to the to the people's nature uh, thing that's going on. 
And, and that's a really provocative thought because we have this whole third book that's not only about Corbinot, but has a very intensive focus on Corbinot and so much of the priestly, you know, Torah Kohanim, that's Sefer Vayikra, right? So much of the priestly Torah and eventually the worship in the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, and the Temple, and the Beit HaMikdash is centered around Corbinot. So, so my question, I guess, if I, if you know, if if, if we were engaging with with Maimonides and, and his philosophy is, what does this mean for us today? It, look, this, this is a, you're so right, and this is a piece of Rambam which is just so interesting to think with. There are some who claim that the Rambam thinks that when a third temple is rebuilt, there won't be sacrifices there. Now, it's important to note that the Rambam never actually says that himself explicitly, but you understand why... People might think that based on what he said. It seems to be that Ramban, Nachmanides, understood him to be, to be saying that. It's actually worth reading the Ramban closer because I think that there is a maybe a desire on the part of certain people to, to feel, you know, we are at the evolutionary peak of humanity in terms of our philosophical, rational sensibilities. But even if even before you get to the Rambam statements elsewhere, in this piece as well, he's saying, well, yes, Korbanot were a concession to the people of the time, but even spoken tefillah and particular set texts and words which we do use are a concession to us today. He says it would be unimaginable, but in but it sounds like he thinks it would be more ideal for us to just communicate with God through our thoughts. He, he also gives the example of fasting. He says fasting is a concession as well, because that's how we approach, approach God. I think it's actually worth probing this point a bit more within the Rambam himself. You and I were speaking about this earlier. The, the Rambam is known as having written these two great works or having these two sides to him, right? He wrote this philosophical work, which we've been talking about, Moreh Nebuchim, and he also wrote Mishneh Torah, which is the great halachic work. And Mishneh Torah has 14 books in it, and two out of those 14 books he dedicates to the Korbanot. I was just reading a piece earlier today by Professor uh, Isidore Tversky, who is one of the great Rambam scholars of the 20th century, and he points out that the Rambam was the first person ever to write a, a full work on the sacrifices in, in the books that appear in the Mishnah Torah. He, he puts so much intensity in it, into it, but not once in any of his writing in Mishnah Torah does one get the sense that it's a concession or it's bedieved. I mean, he, he writes... Uh, you know, he, he writes that Amru Chachamim, the sages say, Shibishvil Avodat HaKorbanot HaOlam Omed, that the world is maintained by the Korbanot. I don't think, I think we just have to admit this is a contradiction in the Rambam. It's a window into him, these two sides of him. I'm not sure how you can reconcile them. <laughs> well, well, I mean, one popular way to reconcile these two sides of Maimonides is to say that he's speaking to different audiences. And that in the Mishnah Torah, he's writing for, you know, a, a broader audience and kind of keeping to, to some like more mainstream um, opinions in some cases. And in the Moran Vuchim, he's speaking to a very select, you know, intellectual elite who maybe can handle, um, who maybe can handle the idea that Korbanot were a concession. But, but 
but you know, before before we dive deep into Maimonides and his thought on his life and his fascinating, um, I do think there's actually something really inspiring, really powerful about divine concession. What does it mean from a purely religious and spiritual level? What does it mean that we can think of a God that wants human relationship enough to actually offer a concession about how humans should approach the divine. It's intriguing because it raises a lot of questions about God, and if we go the Maimonidian route, you know, it's complicated, right? <laughs> but, 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 but there's something here about, like, I'm thinking of Heschel, actually, Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, sort of, 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 of poetic uh, approach to, to God and to relationship, and this is God in search of, of, of men, of humans, of, of all of us. It helps transform Corbanot from, you know, this like, if you think about it, it's like a bloody sacrifice in the temple with a lot of gore and body parts and animals. And it's, I can just imagine what, what, what the mom, actually, I cannot imagine what it looked and felt and smelled like. None of us can. But, it, but this adds a whole other dimension. So what you're saying is, you, you're, the perspective you're giving is, Hashem doesn't want Corbanot. But what he does want is a relationship with human beings. And if what it takes to have that relationship is a korban, then Hashem is ready to accept that. I'm saying that, but I'm also hesitant about it. Because the Torah is also filled with prohibitions about how human beings should not worship God. So I don't think it's this like completely open like relationship. Uh, It's not this like Western, you know, do God your own way as long as... Approach you do you exactly like do God like a Shilaism sort you know uh, habits of the heart like a way of of making God into in your own image I don't I don't think that's it I think there's something you know a little bit more elusive here which is that God is is giving an opening to to approach God but also limiting that and, and actually if we read Vaikra it's not this open open door policy come sacrifice. There's different kinds of korbanot. Some of them are consumed and some fully and some partially. Some, the, the person who gives them eats and some, uh, the priest and some, it's fully consumed and some you share. And some korbanot are choba, they're obligatory, mandatory. And some are nedava, you give them uh, out of, uh, because you want to, uh, out of, you know, gratitude or other things. Um, uh, and it's very there's very careful um, legislation about which animals you can bring and what amount and also what you can afford and and all kinds of details that that actually introduce this very very intricate system um, that both has this maybe divine concession to to human um, impulses but at the same time very very intricate limitations. In some ways, though, I like to go back to the Rambam in that contradiction, in that sort of irreconcilability. I mean, I like to think of the Rambam as the author of both works and of him as genuinely putting himself into both works. And the fact that there is something that's irreconcilable there, that's all right, because the Rambam himself was pulled in different directions, as we ourselves, I think, often are. On the one hand, yes, he was this rationalist philosopher who struggled with the idea of Korbanot. On the one, on the other hand, he was you know, not traditional. Doesn't even begin to describe. He was the tradition, right? He was this this inheritor of it, and so he he fully embraced it. And I think that's actually something which we probably share in common with him. Uh, Rabbi Joe, if I were to ask you, 
what's your favorite teaching? Uh, maybe your favorite thinker in, in the way that they approach the, the core, the essence of what Corban is supposed to symbolize or represent. What would you say? There is a man called Michael Wishagrod, who I used to describe for a long time to my students as the most important Jewish philosopher that you've never heard of. Michael Wishagrod was uh, an, old, an old student of Rav Soloveitchik already from the 1930s and then went on to study academic philosophy. He wrote a book called Body of Faith. And in that book, Body of Faith, it's quite a dark book. In fact, ironically, considering what we've just spoken about, it's a very anti-Rambam book. He wants to, inst- he wants to restore the primacy of the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that sort of that metaphor of a real relationship. God is a personality. God is not an idea or a concept. And returning to that sort of what he claims is a more biblical um, approach than the one the Rambam introduces. And in that, sacrifices feature very prominently. And he has this extremely arresting, and it's probably actually quite a disturbing passage, but it's extremely beautiful. And I I look to every, in fact, not only do I look at it, I print it out before every Yom Kippur and put it on the seats of, uh, of of our minyan for people to look at. He says that the real point of the Korbanot are to remind us of our own mortality. That just as an animal is about to lose its life, so too we should be reminded of the fragility of our own lives. And it's an, it has to be read in the original to really be appreciated. But that for me is such a powerful idea that perhaps the acceptance of Kolbanot at the heart of the Torah is a reminder to us to accept our own frailty, our own fragility and mortality. And in fact, he does push this the, this the other way. What he calls in a slightly mocking tone, enlightened religions attempt to cleanse religion of all of the mess that is associated with Sefer Vayikra is in fact a denial of the parts of us which are most problematic and most messy And by doing so, they remove the most important parts of our humanity from our religious experience. I think what you're introducing um, with with this source and this new aspect is like, you know, we spoke already about Korbanot as having to do with love and intimacy and relationship and closeness. But, But what I'm understanding you saying is that this also offers a portal in which religious community religious ritual and religious experience also gives space for the messiness of an animal sacrifice and the pain of it. And if we actually kind of um, take ourselves, we try to imagine being physically present in front of a korban and what that meant to take an animal and and offer it to God uh, and then have it represent the messiness of a human experience, uh, I think that's a really powerful teaching, actually, for this moment. Maybe this whole idea of closeness to God is, it is about approaching God, but it's also a solace to humans. It's a way for us to come with all of our brokenness and the difficult parts in us and to stand before God and to say, here I am, and this is who I am, and this is what I have. 
this is my brokenness and I don't know how to fix it yet. I don't know if I will, but, uh, but maybe this is what it means to be, maybe this is what, this is what it means to be in relationship, that the, the raw vulnerability of standing before Boreolam, before the creator, um, in, in, in the full complexity and messiness of what that, what that looks like. You're reminding me of Leonard Cohen, who just is just like a theme throughout so much of his music, and he's maybe the most Jewish of all 20th century musicians. There is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Right? It's it's precisely in our messiness that actually the beauty is the beauty's found. Yeah. Wow. Um. So so Rabbi before before we uh, we begin winding down, uh, I know that we were learning before the podcast also. And you mentioned to me a really exciting uh, teaching about Rashi. Yeah, so here is a piece on Vayikra, which isn't about Korbanot, and which is beautiful and hopefully can give us some of the comfort that we all need at this time. The first word Vayikra means, and he called, God calls to Moshe. And Rashi picks up on this language, which is different to the normal language of Vayidaber, God spoke, and he says, Lashon Chiba, Chiba, affection. God is calling Moshe affectionately. And what's so interesting, this is something pointed out by Rabbi Mordechai Breuer, is that in his first comment on every single book of the Torah, Rashi goes out of his way to speak about God's love of Israel. The first Rashi on Bereshit, the first Rashi on Shmot, the first on Vayikra, on Bamidbar, and on Devarim. And every time, points out Rebroya, the context, the actual context of the verses is not about God's love of Israel. Rather, Rashi goes out of his way to insert this message into the text at a critical juncture. And Rav Breuer and also Professor Abraham Grossman, they have this very beautiful piece where they say one of the major things that Rashi wished to communicate to his audience was God's love for Israel. Why did he do this? Well, one large part of it must be the context in which Rashi lived. Rashi was born in 1040. He died in 1105. He lived through the worst of the Crusades. He saw Ashkenazi Jewry and communities that he knew absolutely ravaged and destroyed. And the message that he chose to give his community was that despite all this, God loves us. He didn't say God will judge us, so therefore stay loyal. He didn't say God is your king, and so stay loyal. He said, despite everything going on, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is deeply in love with Am Yisrael. And I think that, you know, that those words written, you know, probably a little bit under a thousand years ago, that idea, that's what made Rashi into who he was. And it seems to me that that idea is about as relevant now as could ever be. And we don't just need to talk in the particularist tone when it comes to God's love for the Jewish people, despite everything going on now. And I think this is probably the darkest week that well, the world as a whole has experienced in my lifetime. We believe that Hashem still loves humanity and that, please, God will come to a brighter day. We, we all need so much comfort right now. And, and you know, I agree with you. This has been one of the darkest weeks. And, and, and I also think it's important to know that things might continue difficult uh, for a while. And to, and to have um, Rashi's voice and, 
also just the, the, the voice from the parasha, like reminding us about, about God wanting to reach out to us and about the, the concession that God makes for human connection. Um, and, uh, and also the fact, you know, the idea that we brought about God, um, and not just God, but really the ritual of Korban, not making space for human brokenness and human complexity. And now this idea that God loves each and every one of us. Um, I think this is, I think these are the sort of, of ideas that are going to help us as we, as we go, as we go through these days. Uh, and I'll just add um, one last thing that, 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 that uh, which I love that you just said, Rabbi Joe, that it's not only about a particularistic message that God loves the Jewish people, even, and, and, and that's really significant because even though the Korbanot are actually very particularistic and Vayikra is so particularistic about all of the laws about ritual purity and impurity, they really are about the people of Israel. But the message here is a, is a human one. Uh, and perhaps the, the question that I'm going to take with myself um, as, I, as I go on through the, the week and try to be inspired by the parasha is not only how can I make sure to remember that Hashem loves us, wants to be in relationship with us, but what would it mean to treat other people and to engage with them with this constant reminder that Hashem loves them and what kind of compassion and empathy um, can, we, can we have for people that we know and people that we don't know when we remind ourselves of this, um, of this simple but really deep uh, and radical, radical teaching. I think that's really beautiful. And if you're, if you're, if I can follow your example of what are we, what am I taking from this conversation into the week? Well, perhaps just like Rashi, you know, lived in such a dark time, and yet produced such a beautiful work series of works that have you know, lasted for a thousand years please god that this dark time for the world can produce some really really beautiful things nevertheless and hopefully in our own way michael that this podcast can can be something beautiful and bright that comes out of this period that wouldn't have happened otherwise this has been the Downtown Drash podcast. It's a project of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life, OUJLIC, and the Downtown Minyan. Thank you for listening to our conversation, and we hope you join us to learn Torah every week.